Many of us remember Vacation Bible School. We sang silly songs with elaborate hand motions. We memorized Bible verses. We drank little cups of juice and ate animal crackers. And depending on our age, we learned the stories of our faith through the cutting edge media of the day, from flannel graphs to puppet shows to well-produced videos of singing vegetables. But I think for a lot of people, this is about as far as we have gone in our exploration of these stories, particularly those in the Old Testament. And that's a problem. Over the next couple of months, we will be rereading some of the most celebrated biblical stories of our youth, but this time, we will be setting them in their proper historical context, which means that even though we may have heard the stories of Noah and Abraham and David and Jonah, we may have missed the point. I mean, they aren't really kid stories. So brace yourselves and break out the animal crackers. This is adult VBS. All right, so now this is our sermon series. We're taking a break from the book of John just because I think 28 weeks and getting through nine chapters is pretty sluggish on on my part. So we're wanting to take a break for the summer. And really what I wanted to do is kind of tap into some of these uh, vacation Bible school stories that maybe you heard. And again, I'm relying on the fact that I grew up in the church. I went to Christian school, kindergarten through 12th grade. I was at church on Sunday morning, sometimes Sunday evening, Wednesday night for youth group. These are like the stories, not only of my faith, but of my childhood and, and upbringing. And for the most part, these are the stories that formed me as a, as a young Christian. Now, I'm gonna warn you that if you've spent any amount of time with me, this shouldn't be a, a surprise to you, but what's about to happen is I'm not really gonna talk about these stories in the same way that you've heard them at Vacation Bible School. We're gonna set these stories in their ancient Near Eastern historical and literary context because that's just what we do here. I do have some things to say about that, but really, uh, I, I'm, we're gonna dig in, get our hands a bit dirty here, and my hope is not to disorient or to disrupt your love and appreciation of the Bible. I just want to, to set this framework here. I've devoted my entire adult life to studying and attempting to understand the Bible. I love it dearly. I believe that through its words, we can meet the risen Jesus and we can become uh, formed in our faith. But the way that I do handle it, it looks a bit different, and for the uninformed or the uninitiated, might be a better way of phrasing it, it can look a bit um, callous, and I do not mean it to be so, okay? Now, if you have your Bibles, you can flip along with us in Genesis chapter six through chapter nine, um, I'm gonna be pulling specifically some sections of this passage, and I didn't really know how to break this uh, down to you, but instead of just reading three straight chapters of the Hebrew Bible, I'm going to read you, <clears throat> I'm going to read you <clears throat> one of the two flood stories that we have in our Bible, <clears throat> okay? So this is, this is uh, 
some sections from Genesis 6 through 9. It reads like this. These are the descendants of Noah. And actually, before we get into it, uh, what you should know here is this is a structuring device within the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the, the Toledot structure is what it's called. And it sets off certain stories. So most scholars would say that this is, is the beginning of, of the Noah story here. This is uh, in Genesis chapter 6. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Generation, Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I should also warn you, this is a long story, okay? Settle in, get nice and cozy. Don't put your head back, because we might lose you, all right? But just brace yourselves. I'm going to try to refrain and not have much commentary, but we know how that goes. Also note what I didn't say at the beginning of this sermon. I didn't say, I don't know, guys, I think it's going to be pretty short this week. I haven't said that, okay? So let's just, let's see how we go. All right, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Just flashback real quick. Um, God told Noah to build him an arky-arky. God told Noah to build him an arky-arky. Build it out of gopher barky barky, gopher wood. Did you guys ever hear that as a kid? Okay, so the Hebrew word there is gopher. Uh, it has nothing to do with the animals, okay? It's just a word that many Hebrew scholars don't really know what it means. The dictionary definition is wood of an uncertain type, okay? All right, so here we go back to it. Um, if I was to ever teach your children just using some of these songs, we would completely deconstruct most of their, their brains. And I, I, I don't do that when I'm back there with the kids, Michael. You can rest assured. Okay. Um, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is actually going to be important uh, later on. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and put the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Some people think that this is important because it resembles a three-tiered universe. Okay. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Check out the order here. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. I'm not going to make a comment on that later. I just want to let the reader understand. We're dealing with an ancient text here. If I was to order it, me and the boys and Kate, that's, that's less... That's less of a winning formula, okay? And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. 
of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. What does this sound like to you? Thank you, Genesis 1, the creation story. Two of every kind shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I do want you just to take notes here as we're going through this story. What Noah is doing what Noah is saying, not much. What kind of a character Noah is in this depiction? Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came on the earth. Nobody catch me in the hallway after this is over and say, hey man, what's up with all the people living so long back in the day? Okay, let's just not have that hallway conversation. <laughs> in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of that month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, that is the, the Tehom Rabbah, and the windows of the heavens were opened. On that very same day, Noah with his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, they entered the ark, they and every wild animal of every kind and all domestic animals of every kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every bird of every kind, every bird, every winged creature. It sounded like a wedding ring to me. It was. There you go. <laughs> they went into the ark with Noah, two and two, or two by two, if you want, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Catch that. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. A cubit is about a foot and a half or so. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings. And the waters swelled on the earth for 150 days. In distinction from the Arky Arky song, which said how many days? 40 days, 40 nights. Okay, just tuck that one in the back of your head. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month, this is three months later, in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared, and Noah sent out the raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. Noah and his family had been on the boat for a pretty long time, it's about a year uh, from the beginning of this retelling. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your son and your son's wives with you. He gets a little bit of the order 
correct there. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. What does it sound like? The creation story. Yep. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his son's wife and every animal, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out of the ark by families. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the air, on everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. We're landing this plane here of this, this really long story. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning for human life. I'm not going to touch this one in this talk this evening. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed, for in his own image, God made humankind. And you, Noah, be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, as for me, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds. This image is a little bit different than how we usually think of it. It doesn't say, I mean, it would be a proper translation, I have set my rainbow in the clouds. There might be some implications of a war bow in the clouds. Just let that permeate for a bit. I've set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks and it's over. Thanks be to God, right? My advisor told me one time that um, to incorporate more of the Bible in a Sunday setting is not a bad thing because when we're honest, a lot of us don't necessarily dig into our scriptures throughout the week. And within the American church, reading the Bible has become almost a novelty. Not here. I'll give you almost three chapters on any given Sunday, okay? Um, so as we, as we think about this story, perhaps you have some ideas or some teachings that are familiar to you or that have been ingrained in your brain from childhood on, particularly with regard to what this story is about, 
what we learn about Noah, what we think we know about Noah. I don't know if there's a Veggie Tales specific to the Noah story, but perhaps that has informed you. Hopefully it's not Russell Crowe in that terrible movie that was made five or six years ago about Noah, but there's things, there's stories, there's retellings that have led you to believe certain things about this particular story. And we're going to address some of those this evening around this frame. And and really, you could think about our entire sermon series on adult VBS is going to be a commentary on this one line that has been wrecking my brain for the last year or so from John Walton. He says, the Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. Sit with that for just a second, because if, if you're anything like me, perhaps you've heard some, some things like the Bible is God's love letter to you. And that's sweet and sentimental and nice. And, and yeah, we learn about Jesus there. But when you try to, to open up the text and put yourself into an ancient context of which you have no idea what is going on, it becomes difficult for us to understand what the authors are attempting to communicate to a people so far removed, not only in time, but in culture. I grew up on a pig farm in Laurel, Delaware. That's a distinct culture. And there might be some overlap with the, uh, some of the Israelites as they're herding their animals and such. I didn't really do much on the pig farm. I had one summer job where I would spray the manure down a drain pipe in the, the hog houses. It was a glorious part of my life because they would usually get stopped up and I'd have to jam the hose down in there until something, until it blew back out and I'd have to hose it back down. You know what I'm saying? Okay, great. Where am I going with that? I don't know. Uh, the, the culture is so radically different in how we read the Bible. It would be a bit presumptuous for, for us to think that we can open the text and immediately begin to understand it. However, I do want to address the tension in the room with some of the things that I'm saying right now, because what I don't expect for us to do is for us to say, you know what? I'm going to be done at the UPS store. I'm going to pack up my bags. I'm going to move to New Haven with my family, and I'm going to go to Yale Divinity School for a bit, just so I can learn about the, the, the ancient scriptures. Or for, for you guys to say, you know what, I'm going to take some time off from, from parenting or from, from my job, and I'm just going to enroll in a seminary class or seven so that I can really understand what's going on. This is, this is not logical for us to think that that's the case. So while I'm sitting here saying that it takes a lot of work for us to understand the Bible, I want to address the tension in the room that there's things that we can understand just from a plain sense reading of the Bible. Let us not discount the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide and to illuminate our understanding of what is in this sacred text. However, as I've quipped a few times in the past, I have not yet known the Holy Spirit to grant to people through that illumination process an understanding of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Ugaritic and Akkadian and the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible. So while there's things that we can learn and, and, and grapple with and, and love and that it forms us, there's also some work to be done. So whatever it is that I'm about to do with the Bible here in the next few minutes, don't make that the format for your own personal devotion. This is what we're doing in this space. And when you go home, love the Bible. 
read the Bible because it points you to the God that we serve. Understand the order there. It's pointing us to the God we serve. It is not the God that we serve. Now, for many of us, the way that we understand Noah, it goes back to our childhood and it goes back to these cutesy stories where we uh, kind of play with the animals. I think there might be a penguin on there somewhere or something. I mean, there's, there's some random stuff happening. And for many people, this is kind of guiding their understanding of the story. And if it's not this, then it's the people who are really wrestling with how God could, could um, call a mass genocide into play. So you have these two extremes where some people come to the text and they say, this doesn't make sense that God would want to kill everyone, or, oh, aren't these animals cute? <laughs> and Fisher-Price has helped us along with that, and we put the, we put the little uh, giraffe families on the boat. You know, it's a, the, the lion laying down with the lamb, you know? And you, you, don't, you don't know what happened on the ark. Sure Re- you know? I would think not, but that's, that's, just, that's just me and you thinking... Um, you know, normal, rational thoughts. Now, for many people, the way that they approach this story, and I don't mean to diminish this, this is what many of us have been taught to do. We read it just for what it is, and we accept it for what it is. Again, because we don't understand the context of the story that we're attempting to read. So some people would just go into it and say, oh, well, these are the details. This is how it happened. This is when it happened, and this is what we can take away from it. And it's led to some things like this. Um, a couple scholars, Tremper Longman and John Walton, say it's probably easier for for a modern audience to misunderstand the text, and here's the example that they're using, and take it as if it is describing an actual boat. Certainly, this is the case with Ken Ham, a leading young earth creationist, and in July 2016, Ken Ham opened the Ark Encounter, a life-size replica of the Ark that people can go on, and this is the picture of his project. I, I, I had a bunch of pictures of like the different stages of the development and all the heavy machinery that was there to get this thing to be built, but I thought that was a little heavy-handed. Because in our story, we just have Noah with like a wooden mallet. You know, he doesn't have a crane or an excavator or whatever else you would use to build a monstrosity like this. Um, also, I, th- I thought this was interesting. Uh, Ken Ham apparently understands cubits in a way that no one else has understood. So he has made this boat to spec with dimensions that no other biblical scholar thinks is accurate. That's funny. (laughs) Because he's hyper-literal about this. You guys with me on, you you with me? Okay. It's funny. So some people have, have gone to this, this, this sort of understanding of the Bible. It, it's in there. We can just accept it for what it is, and it might be easier. However, when you just ask yourself some questions about a text like this, again, Longman and Walton say, if taken as precise measurements of an actual boat, the ark that's described in the Bible is larger than any wooden boat built, not just in antiquity, but at any time, including today. This is a monstrosity of a boat. 450 feet long or so wooden boat. And while you can pick apart how it was built, you could also begin to pick apart, would a boat like that float? And how? I know it's made of gopher wood and all, but I mean, we, we don't know. And then again, if you, if you begin to start asking yourself these, these questions that began, uh, be, became part of the thing back in the, the 19th century, 
you could go here. And this was the first time I've ever heard this uh, type of argument. It says a global flood such as uh, that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. If we take that literally, then this flood event is covering all of the mountains on the face of the earth at any one moment, and perhaps that includes Mount Everest. Now, you could put an asterisk here and you could say that we don't know how large Mount Everest was back then, but let's just pretend that we do, and it's 29,000 feet. If that's the case, then for this amount of rain to fall in 40 days and 40 nights, that would require rainfall of about 30 feet per hour. I live on the west side of town. You guys know, we flood all the time over there. But could you imagine 30 feet an hour? Even if you want to, uh, to dial this back a bit, and even if these days were 150, according to the story or the version of the story that we read, that would still be about eight feet per hour. It says the hardest rainfall ever recorded was one foot in an hour. And more to the point, 30 feet per hour would sink any ship. Such a storm, according to Christopher B. Hayes, is not only impossible, it's unimaginable. Now let's go back to my intro. I'm not here to mess with your understanding of the Bible. But if pointing out some of these things helps us to pause and to wonder, I think we might be heading in the right direction. Because this story is not about a boat. This story is not about these details being enacted in, in the exact way that it's described in Scripture. Uh, when I, I posted that uh, on Facebook and I got some kickback for it, and one person said, well, it's not just the rain that's falling from the heavens. It's also, it's a, it's a seismic event where the, the foundations of the earth are springing forth water. And I think this is where we're getting onto some good ground here, no pun intended. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of that month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep, the Tahom, if you've hung out with me as we're talking about Genesis 1, that mythical deep, the waters that, that, that symbolize chaos in the ancient mind, it begins to break and burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. What this text is actually doing, it's, 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 it's giving us a window into an ancient mindset, into how people understood the world. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it talks about separating the waters from above and the waters from below. And the way that God does that is he, in a sense, hammers out a rakia. The verb there, uh, it kind of has this idea of of metal working and, and spreading out this, hammering out this, this sheet of metal. That's not happening in this text, but most people would say that what God is putting into uh, place in the universe is a solid dome to keep the waters above out of the heavens and the earth below. So we've got waters below and waters up here. And in Genesis chapter six, when the flood begins to happen, I don't know if you guys caught this, but it says the floodgates open. This might not be just a metaphor for what people are thinking is happening in a, in a large storm. Like we might say it's raining cats and dogs. What that means, I'm not really sure or where that came from. It seems kind of strange, but we'll leave that for a different day. But what people might have thought is these floodgates were actually opening to let the waters from above fall onto the land. This is representing an ancient mindset from people. And for us to understand what this flood story is about, we have to get back into that culture because the Bible was not written 
to us. The Bible was written for us. For, so for in order for us to understand what's going on in the flood story, you have to deal with the ancient Near Eastern context of this story. So this, as cute as it might be, it's leading us probably in the wrong direction. Because there's nothing on this boat with these cute animals and the lion laying down with the lamb. That's very eschatological, fancy word. But there's not a lot here that can get us back into the, the ancient period of the time. Because the Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. Now, for us to understand this story, now here's where I'm going to ask you to bear down and stick with me. Because when we can place the story of Noah in its context, this will lead us to understanding the beautiful and life-shaping, potentially transformative theology that this story has for us today. So the flood stories in the ancient Near East, it's important for us to note this right here. There's a lot of flood stories. Noah is not the only one in the ancient world of which there's a flood story about. For example, we have Atrahasis. Say Atrahasis. Just feels scholarly, and I just love being in a room with 40 or so people talking about ancient Akkadian texts, okay? Atrahasis is a Noah figure from a story way back when around Mesopotamia that talks about someone surviving the flood. We also have in the Epic of Gilgamesh, we have a character named not Gilgamesh, who was actually a king of Uruk, I think 2800 BCE or so, but we have a character named Utanapishti. Say Utanapishti. That's really cool. Okay. Utanapishti was one who was warned by the gods of this flood that was happening, and eventually, um, by navigating through the waters, was granted uh, eternal life. And Gilgamesh goes in his big adventures and goes to talk to Utanapishti to hear about this flood and to hear how he too might get eternal life because his dear friend had died. And without his friend, he didn't know what the point of living was. So he goes and talks to this person who has gone through a flood episode. Now these stories, side note, they probably predate the stories that we have in Genesis. These stories are not just, um, the, we have the Bible and then everybody uses the Bible to get what they get. No, it, it seems to be a, a, a bit uh, different in this sense. Now, if you compare Atrahasis and the, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the flood story that we have in Genesis 6 through 9, a lot of similarities show up. Number one, there's a flood and a huge boat. These Noah figures, they're also building boats, and they're building them to precise dimensions that don't necessarily match the boat in Genesis, but they are called to, to cover the boat in pitch, this thing will, that will help it to float. Uh, they include clean and unclean animals on board of these boats because at the end, most people are offering sacrifices to the gods. Now, the difference between Noah and his sacrifice when he comes off the boat and Atrahasis and Utanapishti is um, these gods over here are hungry. So it says that they start gathering around the barbecue pit like flies around meat because they've gone so long without humans who are the slaves 
to cook for them that they're now hungry in these stories. So they're having clean and unclean animals on board. There's a Noah figure and his family which are saved. The boat comes to rest on a mountain in all three of these stories. There's birds that are sent out of these vessels that uh, mimic what's happening in the flood story in Genesis. And also God smells the pleasing aroma of a sacrifice. When all these texts were found in the mid-19th century, people started freaking out because all we had at the time was the Bible. And then all of these random stories started showing up that looked like Noah and felt like Noah and said a lot of the same things as Noah. In fact, there was a version of the Atrahasis epic found in 2014, five years ago, that adds this detail that the animals were loaded onto Atrahasis' boat two by two. What? What? I mean, you got no, you've got no concept of this in the 19th century. We barely have concept of this right now. I might be blowing some of your minds that our Bibles look like other ancient Near Eastern stories and texts. And I got to tell you, I love it because what it's implying is God speaks to God's people in ways that they understand. And as I'll say this until my dying day, he is still speaking to you in a way that you understand. How terrible would it be for you to be having some private time in your car, listening to K-Love, reading your daily bread, wanting God to rip the heavens and start speaking to you, and he does so in ancient biblical Hebrew. You have no clue what he's doing or what he's saying, but God does not do that. He talks to us in ways that we understand to communicate his truths to impact and form our lives. These stories, Atrahasis and Gilgamesh with Utanapishti and Noah in the Bible, they're breathing the same air they're not dependent on one another. Ancient, ancient cultures have flood stories because people care when things happen. They say, what does this mean about how the divine is engaging with us? What did we do to merit this destruction? What did we do to merit our salvation? People begin to, to to think about these stories in this way. So back in the 19th century, I'll just throw this in there for your two cents. Back in the 19th century, people started wondering like, okay, does this mean that the Bible is just ripping off of Gilgamesh and Atrahasis? Does this mean that Atrahasis and Gilgamesh are ripping off the Bible? No, because the Bible is written later. But people started wondering, what does this mean for the Bible? If it's not unique, if it's not in a category of its own, and people really wrestled with these things. It's better for us to think about these stories breathing the same air because God is reeling himself in cultures where they are making sense of the world in these sorts of ways. But despite the similarities, Genesis is doing some, something different. And this is where I want us to buckle in. I don't think this part will take a long time. I'm sorry, guys. This sermon series. Woo! I love talking about the Old Testament. So I better watch myself and maybe I should preach my sermons in the mirror more often than I do just to get a gauge on on time here, okay? Despite the similarities, Genesis is doing something different, and this is the key for us to understand why the flood story is important. Forget the cutesy boat with the penguins and the lion and the lamb and the snakes and all that stuff. Side note, snakes can fend for themselves. 
They don't need to be on my boat, okay? And the mice, for the sake of my wife, and frogs. I'm kind of scared of frogs, too. They can, they can all fend for themselves. Okay. Maybe they could just swim, swim it out. I don't know. Okay, the, the reasons for the flood story in these uh, other epics, they're very different. For example, in the Atrahasis epic, the human slaves are too loud, and it's disrupting the gods' sleep patterns. There's this, like, caste system of gods. You've got the really important gods, and then you have the lower gods. And the lower gods were being forced to do all of the slave labor for the upper gods. They're just sitting around having a good time eating grape leaves and whatever else really important gods do when they have lesser gods to serve them. And these lesser gods start a rebellion, but they get squashed. And out of some of the dead bodies of the lesser gods, they create humanity to be their slaves. But humanity figures out how to have sex, and they start reproducing all over the place, and there's too many of them, and they just start getting too loud, and the gods up here say, what's all that racket? It's the slaves on the bot, like the, the, the very sexually charged slaves that are attempting to just make it through the day and make babies. They, they don't like that because it's disrupting the gods' sleep. So it's almost like out of capriciousness and just malevolence. Malevolence? Thank you for the podcast. Malevolence. (laughs) They're just flooding people to get rid of them. This is not so in Genesis. God sees the evil inclination of people, how it's evil from from the very core of their being, and God is grieved by it. It says that God is sad that he made humanity because of what they have become. This says a lot about who God is. God cares about his creation. It says a lot when you compare that story to the story of others. Namely, there's not like this divine council that's trying to figure out how to get more sleep. God is invested in the lives of his people and he's attempting to be engaged. From the very beginning in in Genesis 1 and 2, he's given them a job to do, namely to reign and rule in God's stead over everything. But it all goes to pot real fast. And it's not just eating the magical fruit in the garden. It's brothers killing each other. In the beginning of chapter 6, there's some really weird stuff about the sons of God having sex with the daughters of men. I don't want to touch on that tonight. Maybe I'll do a video on that. But there's a lot of weird stuff happening here. And God's heart is broken because His people are not doing what it is that he is wanting them to do. In all three of these stories, it's the reintroduction of chaos, which in the the creation story, remember, God's spirit is hovering over the Tahom, the great mythical waters, and God is saying, I am putting you at bay. I am putting you under my control And I've got humanity looking out to keep chaos tamed and to have order be put in place. But throughout the story, it just doesn't happen. We learn a lot about God in this story, namely that God is not just ticked off, uh, that, that God's not able to get sleep. And we learn a lot about the people, namely that they're created with purpose. 
to reign and rule. They've been given a job to do. They, they're created in the image and likeness of the Most High. They're not created to do slave labor because the middle class gods are tired of doing the work. We are invested. It's almost like if you, if you read some of the Psalms, like with, with kingly status, we are a people of worth and importance. And God has invested in us and has tasked us with really important and beautiful stuff. Uh, Walter Brueggemann says, what we find in these stories is not an angry tyrant, but a troubled parent who grieves over this alienation that's taking place. God is not angered, but grieved. He's not enraged, but saddened. God does not stand over against, but with his creation. And this is really cool. Tellingly, the pain that he bequeathed to the woman in 316 as part of her curse where she would feel the pains of childbirth. This same term is used of God and how God feels of us as a parent who cares for us. When we go to these stories and we think, oh, this is just a genocidal, ancient, patriarchal God killing everybody, no. It's so radically different because God is invested in the lives of his people. Now, this is important because we've seen this judgment that's happening, and even though we can begin to understand it with a God who has this great pathos for, for God's people, there's this moment when, when it all hinges and hangs on Noah, and God says, uh, but Noah, or the, the narrator, excuse me, says, but Noah was righteous, and, and, and God is going to do a great work through Noah. Brueggemann again says, the narrator wants the listening community to turn to Noah, to consider that in this troubled exchange between creator and creation, there is the prospect of a fresh alternative. Something new is at work in creation. Noah is the new being for whom none of the other data applies. It says that there's evil only all the time, but Noah was righteous. Another hint that maybe we're reading, if we're pushing this to be literal, we're, we're looking at this too diff, too, uh, in the wrong way, because it's just... It's, deconstructing itself. Everything is evil all the time, but Noah's righteous. And in Noah, we have this hope of a new creation, a new community through which God will do something. This story at its core, it's a story of both uncreation and the fact that our evil has led to chaos being reintroduced in the world, but it's also a story of recreation because God will not give up on his people and he will continue to rebuild he will continue to reshape. He will continue to covenant himself with his people in love. It's a story of recreation. And you can look back, as Heather mentioned, to these uh, hints of the creation uh, account in Genesis chapter 1 that we see in this story. It's a story of recreation, and it's a story of commitment because God says, never again am I going to do this. This is not really a piece of these other ancient Near Eastern flood stories. And it's interesting to me that when God is hanging his bow in the sky, we immediately go to rainbows. And that's cool. That's, that's in there. That's part of it. And I know like when you're driving down the road and you see one like, oh, yes, God won't destroy us ever again. That's so beautiful. But there's also this, this ancient Near Eastern uh, metaphor motif where God is hanging his bow in the sky. And when you think about it, you have this rainbow here. It's like an undrawn bow. 
the, the war is over. The destruction is over. God is only committed. God is only invested. God is only with God's people in the midst of whatever it is that we face. It's a story of recreation. It's a story of commitment. And it's all based on God's remembrance. There's this hinge verse in, in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, but God remembered Noah. Some scholars have said that we can move from judgment to commitment because of God's remembrance. I've just got one more thing that I hope will, will bring this um, to a close. Most scholars would say that the story of Noah was completed or reached its final form during the period of the Babylonian exile. You've got the Israelites who were in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and you have the Israelites who are uh, unfaithful to, to their end of, of the covenant. They, they, they disregard the law. They start uh, being a people of injustice. They are punished, and they go through exile, and in this post-exilic moment, they start to say, does God even care about us anymore? Is God with us? Is God present? Is God in the midst of this? Because all we know now is we're not at our home, and we're in this Babylonian context with the pagans. We've got no temple. We've got no written law. We're just kind of out here on our own. Does God still care? And all throughout the prophets, especially the post-exilic prophets, like at, toward the later chapters of Isaiah, God says, I remember you. I will not go anywhere without you. I am not done with you yet. In fact, my story will reach a beautiful climax where you will be a blessing to the nations, even if you are reluctant to be so because Jesus will show up to invite people like us into the party. And if you think about the story of the flood in the midst of Babylonian exile to a people who are wondering where they fit and how they fit, and they can resonate with this story of destruction because they've been through it, and they can resonate with this story of maybe God is still angry with us and maybe God is still grieved that he has made us because we haven't lived up to our end of the bargain. And then they reach that moment, that line in chapter 8 where it says, but God remembered Noah. And the implications of that start flooding back. Perhaps God has remembered us too. Now, we can go in, in this direction, and I think it's mildly appropriate. We can look at the news, and we see horrific images of people, and we wonder, is chaos still invading? Does God still care about this place, his people, his plan, about redemption through Jesus and reconciliation? We're the restoration project, and we believe that God is restoring all things, yet when we go to the news, we see all these horrific images of life being lived seemingly separate from, from God. And I'd like to propose to you this evening the simple truth that whatever it is that you're going through, for some of you, it's not just looking at the images. For some of you, your own images are being created of chaos and destruction and suffering. And in the midst of that exile, 
God remembers. God is not a capricious and malevolent bully who is out to get you. God's bow is hung up in the sky. He is only invested and only committed. And he remembers. This story, and I don't know how you would package this for kids at VBS, but this story, it goes so much farther than cute animals on a boat. It's a story of powerful theology and anthropology that says wherever you are and whatever you've been through and whatever is going down in your life, God remembers and he is not done. On the other side of Easter, we get to to fall in line with Jesus and we see a lot of Noah and Jesus and those ties together. And I would encourage you to remember or to to be reminded in this moment that as we understand that God remembers and God is invested in us, that that great pathos, that motherly investment was taken to its culmination in the death of Jesus who puts evil and sin and death to death for us. God has remembered you. May we live in light of that. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of TRP's weekly podcast. If you live in or near Salisbury, Maryland, come join us for one of our Sunday services. We'd love to meet you. If you're interested, you can get more info on our website, restoresby.org, or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash restoresby. If you're a regular listener, thanks for coming back. If you've benefited from what we do and would like to support us, you can share all your kind words and good vibes with the world by rating us on iTunes. Or if you're so inclined, you can give financially at give.restoresby.org. We'll see you next week.